I've managed it. I've managed to push Immo out and finally claim Newsable for myself. Okay, not really. She's uh, she's taking a well-deserved extra-long weekend and what a long weekend it was. How about those All Blacks, eh? Anyone who caught the end of our rugby special last week will know I accidentally booked a massage at the same time as the game on Saturday morning. Not the most popular decision, but helpfully, the massage place was right next to a pub, so I could hear the cheers every time we scored, which was a lot and, you know, very, very relaxing. And hey, we get to do it all again this weekend. But first, there's a week of news to get through, so... Without further ado, kia ora, this is Newsable, I'm Jess, and this is What's Worth Talking About. Can we express our feelings about the war between Israel and Hamas without sparking more conflict? The Human Rights Commission tells us how. The inquest into the March 15 terror attacks begins today at a size and scale unprecedented in New Zealand. Our goal to be predator-free by 2025 is itself in danger thanks to corporate confusion. And the results are in. Find out what was crowned New Zealand's most hated vegetable in the 2023 veg election. All that coming up here in a moment on a Jess Only Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. As the war between Israel and Hamas rages on, the news and social media continues to be flooded with horrific images of innocent people, especially kids, suffering the consequences. It's a lot to take in. And being on the other side of the world from the actual conflict, it can be hard to find a way to express our horror, although we've seen mass protests in places like London. But how do we show our feelings without sparking more conflict? For example, when the Auckland Museum lit up blue for Israel last week, that support for one country then in itself triggered counter-protests. To talk through how we can navigate the conflict from afar is Human Rights Commissioner Paul Hunt. Kia ora, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on Newsable. Firstly, has the Human Rights Commission received any reports from people saying they've experienced anti-Semitism or Islamophobia on the back of this conflict? Kia ora, Jess. Yes, we have received some complaints. We're looking into them. And, you know, we've got a mediation service within the Human Rights Commission, so if there are allegations that are brought to our notice around anti-Semitism, around racism, around uh, Islamophobia, we address those and, and some of those go to mediation. Some in due course, very few, might go to the Human Rights Review Tribunal, but we're doing lots of other stuff as well, reaching out to communities, trying to be supportive, empathic. We monitor government to see that they're doing what they should be doing, for instance, increasing security if that's required around, around synagogues and around mosques. And we're engaging on a frequent basis with police, with DPMC, that's the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and so forth and so on. I think we're a pretty engaged kind of country when it comes to overseas events. And when you're looking at the stuff and the pictures that are coming out, it, you want to express your outrage at the treatment of those innocent civilians on both sides of this. But how can we do that without actually picking sides? For a couple of years, I uh, I lived and worked in, in Jerusalem for a year. I I lived and worked in Gaza, uh, Gaza Strip, for a year. It was a Quaker peace-building program, reconciliation program, and this is some years ago now. It's before the Oslo Accords of 1993. The, the idea was that we should visit kibbutzi, we should visit Palestinian camps. My job uh, for those two years was to look out for human rights problems in Gaza and in the West Bank. Now, that was my job then. My job now as Chief Human Rights Commissioner is not to do that, not to do that. My job is right. not to call out human rights in Gaza 
or Israel. Rather, my job is to uh, advance harmonious relations in Aotearoa. Just, just at a, a very human level, I just want to say how horrified, horrified I am by the events of 7, 8, 9, 10 October in Israel mm -hmm. and how horrified I am by the unfolding events in Gaza. Mm. So now I go back to my, my current job as Chief Human Rights Commissioner. The way I think of it is there are certain things that you should try to do and there are certain things you shouldn't do. One of the things you have to do, I respectfully suggest, is you have to acknowledge the pain and the grief and the, the anger. You have to permit the expression of those feelings. Of course, they've got to be expressed in a mindful way, in a res way that's responsive to, to others. But there needs to be that acknowledgement of the pain, grief, and anger. I think related to that, one needs to express you know, empathy and mutual respect for our, our common humanity. And I think we have to learn so far as we can. We have to learn about, about history, recent history. And, and actually, it's complicated. There's some ancient history. We have to learn about the history of Israel and Palestine, the history of anti-Semitism, which is a totally outrageous history of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. We have to learn about a bit about the history of Israel. We have to learn about the history of Palestinians. So there are those sort of do's uh, that I, I suggest. And, and then there are some don'ts. Hit me with the don'ts, Paul. Yep, go on. Okay. Absolutely no anti-Semitism. No Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. No xenophobia. No racism. If you slip and you do fall into that, then you acknowledge it, you apologize, and you withdraw it. Another thing which is difficult is avoid equating one small group with a large group. So if I can give an example, actually in Afghanistan. So in Afghanistan, you've got the Taliban, but you don't equate the Taliban to everybody living in Afghanistan. Yeah, Equally, you don't equate Hamas to everybody living in Palestine or Gaza. So don't equate one group with the larger group. It's really important not to imply any sort of equivalence of suffering. Don't go down that road. It's just impossible mm -hmm. and it's inappropriate. But those are just some do's and some don'ts to help us have respectful, well-informed and difficult conversations. Kia ora, Paul. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat over this on Usable. That was Paul Hunt, Human Rights Commissioner, and kia kaha to anyone trying to navigate this in their own lives uh, and have these tough discussions. Before we move on, if you are missing your daily fix of Imogen Wells, firstly, uh, how rude, but secondly, all you have to do is head over to our Instagram. We're putting up a few behind-the-scenes videos here and there to newsable up your Instagram feed. The latest one, a classic game of this or that. Just search newsable NZ and also Imo's back tomorrow. The first phase of an inquest into the March 15 terror attacks begins in Christchurch today. It's an inquest that's been a long time coming, and it's already been delayed a few times due to its size and scale, which is unprecedented in New Zealand. To talk over what the inquest will look at is Jake Kenny, reporter at The Press. Thank you for chatting to us, Jake. This is called the first phase. Uh, what is it exactly going to look at? Yes, it is. Uh, the first phase in this inquiry is going to be the largest, I guess you could say the most major aspect, and looks into 10 issues to do with what happened on March 15, 2019. Probably the most pertinent is the emergency response on the day, and directly related to that is whether any lives uh, that were lost on the day could have been saved. Just how long is this first phase going to go for, and do we know how many people are going to give evidence? 
Yes, so it's six weeks is what's set down for it. It probably could go a little bit longer. It okay. is unprecedented in its scale is, is absolutely the accurate way to describe it. I mean, the, the country's never seen anything like this before. The evidence before it has, I think, nearly run to 3,000 documents, um, wow. 4,750 images, over 2,000 audio files and over 80 hours of video. Jeepers, imagine collating all that. So with coroner's inquests, a lot of those involved are sometimes able to ask questions of the people giving evidence. How is it going to work with victims' families in this inquest? That's right. So there are more than 140 interested parties to the inquiry, many of whom are family members of people who died. Those parties are all able to be given the opportunity to ask questions, to cross-examine parties. So they can decide whether to or not on certain issues. But uh, the idea is that, yes, everybody involved, those 140 interested parties, are able to ask questions of each other to find out what happened and to sort of drill down and, and establish what's really gone on here. Well, so for every person that gives evidence, there might be kind of 150 or so lawyers slash people to, to ask them questions? If they so choose, wow. yes. Because of the, the sheer scale of things, some of the parties aren't actually represented um, by lawyers. There may be people there on the day who kind of act as an intermediary, but it's, there is simply too much uh, going on here and too many people to, to dot all the I's and cross the T's. But the inquiry, sorry, will do its best to offer that opportunity to everybody involved and they can elect either way. Speaking to victims' families, is there any part of this or any elements of this inquest that you know that they are really keen to be examined? They just want to know what happened down to the most detail they can. The emergency response on the day and the particulars of that are of particular interest because there was no trial in this process because of uh, the guilty pleas. Uh, this is kind of the big opportunity to have a look at what happened on the day and assess all of the information that would have been brought to a criminal court but wasn't because of that. So th this is the, the major opportunity for that. And so what happens after this first phase then, after the six weeks? Is there a second phase? It's likely. Um, that's up for the coroner to decide and she hasn't decided on that yet. All I can really say at this point is that that's to be determined. Jack Kenny, it's going to be an interesting uh, six weeks for you and hopefully we'll be checking in with you as this inquest goes along. Sure. Thanks for your time. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> hey, we're still going to talk about New Zealand's most hated vegetable, and hey, you'll hear no arguments from me. This one never makes it into my trolley. But quickly, if you've got a few seconds, stop what you're doing and give us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. I heard it brings good luck.
The idea of predator-free New Zealand fills me with delight and hope. The thoughts of the bush ringing with the sounds of birds. It was announced in 2016 by the then Prime Minister Sir John Key. We became part of the project which he described as the most ambitious attempted anywhere in the world. The aim is that New Zealand will be completely free of rats, stoats and possums by 2050. While we hear positive heartwarming local tales, several reports obtained by The Post reveal things might not be so rosy. To explain all, we're joined by Sunday Star Times senior reporter Eugene Bingham. Eugene, thank you so much for um, joining us on Usable. Tēnākwe. Good to be here. What are some of the problems that have emerged when it comes to predator-free New Zealand? Well, I think there's some problems that are going on in the background. And we do, as you said, we hear the sort of rosy side of it. And there's some great gains being made in individual projects. But in the background, there's been some worries and there are financial concerns about where's the money going to come from. There's confusion over who's in charge and who does what. And it was a lot messier than I thought it was when I first embarked on having a look at this How bad are these background problems that you're talking about? There are two big reviews that have been carried out and that have gone to Cabinet. One of them came about when Predator Free New Zealand put its hand up and said, hey, a whole lot of money that we receive for Jobs for Nature in which we promise to provide a certain number of jobs and a certain number of projects that we do, we honestly just don't know if we can do that. And the government brought in uh, a consulting firm, Deloitte's, to have a look at, you know, let's have a look and see if we can actually figure this out. And Deloitte's came back and went, yeah, actually, it is a bit tough to try and nail down exactly how this public money has been spent. So then there was another report done in having a look at the broader picture of what's going on. And what that found was that there's been confusion almost from the start about exactly what everyone's roles are, about who does what, about communication, but, you know, sort of raise some questions about the whole goal itself and whether we are going to be able to get there for 2050. So does any of this fundamentally affect predator-free? Could the idea of 2050 be scrapped? I don't know if anyone's going to scrap it. You know, people couch it as this goal that we should aim for and let's not distract Mm. from it. And, you know, I mean, it's not like anyone is pro-possum and is saying, hey, let's ditch the idea and let the possums roam free. So we all love it as an idea and as a goal to go for. But what's certainly uh, in question is whether we're actually going to make it and what it's going to take for us to make it. Okay, well, is there anything positive to report from what uh, the post has obtained? Yeah, so we're embarking on a five-part series that's rolling out over this week and we have a look at the good, the bad and the ugly along the way. There are a whole lot of other things that we uncovered during the series, including issues around management of conflict of interest. Um, But it must be said that there are some great strides being made in terms of being able to get on top of possums and rats and mustelids. It's just Some of the concern is around this happening in pockets rather than a sort of a strategic overall approach. Yeah, and that's, I guess, what people would see in the news as well, news about different um, parts of the country being declared predator-free, but perhaps not a comprehensive overall strategy. Are there any suggestions about how the scheme can be pulled back into line? Well, there's some work going on at the moment, and I think it's going to come down to making some some lines of responsibility and some lines of communication really clear, sort of clarifying exactly who's doing what. And there is a question of money too, because Predator Free 2050 received a whole bunch of money from the Provincial Growth Fund and from Jobs for Nature, and that's all about to run out. And they've warned there's a possibility of us sort of going backwards a bit. All right, we'll watch this space. And um, as Eugene mentioned, this is part of a five-part series that will be unfolding across the week over the Post, the Press and the Waikato Times. So pick up a copy if you want to read some more. Eugene, thank you for your time today. Tēnā 
The ballots have finally been counted and the results are in. Not, unfortunately, for the actual election. Do tune in for that next week for the arguably the second most important election there is. New Zealand's very first vegetable election. Now, this isn't something we concocted, by the way. Four and a half thousand people voted in this poll run by the seed company Yates. Now, to break down the best and worst of our veggie friends is producer Philippa, PT, who is getting the most seats in our veggie parliament. You know, I was a bit surprised by some of these winners, but look, I may be influenced by the absolute loathing expressed in our house for (laughs) one of the winners. Anyway, without further ado, drumroll please. The winners are, number one, tomato. Tomato? Yeah, pretty popular. That's not even officially a vegetable, is it? It's one of those things that sits across categories. <laughs> we like that. Flexible. Very diplomatic. The next one, broccoli. This is the one I'm surprised. I think no children were voting in this. No small children, especially. I love broccoli, but yeah, bit of a surprise. Kumara, no surprise at all. Who doesn't love a kumara? Absolutely. Carrots, same. Sweet and yummy. And the old tried and tested, the peas. Oh, Oh, I love a piece. It's, it's like this person or whoever voted, we, we were thinking about a roast dinner. They all kind of go with, you know, a piece of roast meat, kumara, carrots, peas. Are they the most universally accepted green vegetable? Possibly peas, yeah. Yeah, again, like having having to get a toddler or having to, to convince a toddler to eat a lot of these foods. Carrots, peas, kumara, all good. Broccoli, not so much, as you mentioned. I don't know how that's going to get passed, but yeah, interesting. Okay, winners are grinners. What, though, this is the big question, are the vegetables that people are avoiding? Well, no surprises here, really. But do remember, they still play part of your five a day, or is it now seven or eight or <laughs> a whole lot of servings. Yeah, lots and lots, lots and lots of vegetables. Anyway, number one, kale. Oh, kale. Yeah, it's it's difficult to find a way to, even those kale chips, yeah, but a bit tricky. Yeah, kale sucks. We can agree on that. Okra, also known as lady fingers. I still, I still don't know what this is. I had to Google this before. I've never even seen this before. I'm not sure. Do we sell it in our supermarkets? We do. I think it's a specialty vegetable. It's used a lot in, in curries and I think Caribbean food. They've got a strange texture on the outside, sort of very slightly prickly and sort of slightly gelatinous. So yeah, mm. I can understand it being there. Yes, broad beans, another one I love, but I do understand that a lot of people really mm. hate broad beans. Sweet. A lot of people think this is just for cows to eat. So not surprised it's there. And yes, those overboiled little delights, Brussels sprouts. Ah, uh, Brussels sprouts. Yes, only tolerable if they're cooked in lots of fat and bacon and nice stuff, I think. Yeah, roasted with blue cheese and hazelnuts. Yum. Hardly tell they're a Brussels sprout. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, PT. Veggies, it seems, are much easier to agree on than politics. And the special votes are clearly much faster to count. I'm off now to eat some veggies myself, specifically potatoes, specifically salt and vinegar chips. Thank you so much for joining us on Newsable today. I'm Jess McCarthy. Kakitsia Popo. We will catch you tomorrow. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.